welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael DeMahan, behind the machine, and to my left is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And to his left is... Theodore. The man under Jesus Christ. You gotta think of your epithets beforehand, huh? You're the only one that changes every episode. Theodore under the PC, the person of Christ. Right. I changed it up two weeks ago. You know, what confuses us is we're in a totally different order here. I'm still on the rightmost side. Have we ever changed that? Have ever been the, the the guest man? I am the man behind the machine, so how could I change? But these two have switched because today's episode is a real humdinger of a thinker. And if you've ever watched our podcast, you'll know um, I do absolutely nothing except talk. Uh, Sebastian does deep research, and our thinker of the podcast is Theodore. So he brought up a topic that we put on our list of topics, and we wanted to talk about it. There are several philosophical proofs for God that I avoid like the plague. Personally, I do not like them, nor the apologists that use them. However, it's not a fair statement to just blanketly reject them all because sometimes they become useful. In fact, um, the channel's been kind of hot recently, so we've been all responding to different comments and looking at them um, in our group chat and then and openly as well. And there's a particular atheist in one of the recent episodes that was talking about and approved to me that God exists, classic stuff. And uh, I ended up pulling out one of these, a portion of one of these philosophical proofs for God just to just to answer the fool according to his folly because you as much as we talk about apologetics you want to stand presuppositionally the Bible is true and just preach the word of God to people um, usually I would say it, it benefits you to at least answer their first objection and then pivot into the gospel so you're always answering mm. them and then pivoting into the gospel that's what we recommend for apologetics I think it's the sharpest way to go make sure you always get in the gospel under there without being muddled in debate that's that's meaningless um, that being said we're going to go through, there's a philosopher, a Christian philosopher guy out there called Edward Fazer, I believe is how you say his name. It looks like Fasser, his Fazer. Um, and he put out a book called Five Proofs, Five, um, Five Proofs of God is what it is. And they're all uh, a crash course, essentially, on these different physiological, no, I'm saying the wrong word, philosophical proofs, philosophical proofs for the existence of God. Like I said, in theory, I don't really like them. And in theater, you had a big, long statement of what they do because they don't really prove, one of my problems is they don't really prove the actual God of the Bible. They just prove some sort of God. And you had some big statement on this, theater. Right. I was just going to say <clears throat> it argues for a God and specifically one that is eternal or outside of that which we are in or outside of the, anything created. Um, and I was just, the preface, uh, this does not preclude the existence of other eternal beings, but one would assume that at least one eternal being tends toward order and goodness, which could explain the order and goodness we observe. And one would assume that at least one eternal being is indeed worthy of worship or at least appeasement. Right. And so that's probably my biggest gripe with all the ones you're going to hear today. Again, I do think they're occasionally useful. So that's why we're going to go through them, not just for for being able to use them in the occasional use, but also just to know that they're out there. So if you ever run into people who are either attacking or promoting certain beliefs, at least you know what they're talking about. Um, we've talked a couple times in the podcast before about fellow apologists named William Lane Craig um, or Frank Turk or some others that I don't particularly like their style. Um, they do not presuppose the Bible. And William Lane Craig has a classic line from a debate, I think, with Christopher Hitchens, some where the atheist goes, well, none of this would prove um, the God of the Bible exists. And then William Lane Craig responds, and he does have this kind of voice. He said, well, you misunderstand me, friend. Uh, I'm not trying to prove the God of the Bible exists, merely that a God exists. And it's like, oh my gosh, so like leave the debate because aren't you a Christian trying to, to propagate Christianity? Or are you just like 
sophistry, you're just promoting sophistry that you're, you're you've promoted a god. Because there's plenty of people that believe in a god that is not the Christian god out there, and it does them no good. So um, we in this podcast and other Christians should be promoting Christianity, not just theism. Um, but in any case, these are some things you can use to promote Christianity if, again, you, you have some of the backbone and say that, yes, this is the Christian God we believe in. Here's some reasons why a God exists. So without further ado, that's a lot of background for you. This, again, is from Edward Fazer, Ed Fesser, uh, <laughs> that's what I would call him. Uh, he has five points. They're not all inclusive. There are other philosophies out there. Um, the cosmological argument and the collab something argument from William Lane Craig. Um, all of them are kind of equally dumb to me. Uh we're going to go through them, though. I will be a little biased. Theodore's a fan, though, so I don't want to just, like, blanket kill them. And like I said, I recently used a portion of one of them before, so they do become useful. And the reason Sebastian's in the middle chair is because this is, like, the cone of silence. Um, and uh, <laughs> he self-wanted to be there because uh, our second in command today, really primary command, is Theodore. Yes, and I may or may not have an axe to grind against philosophy because of its influence in medieval Catholic thinking, so... Before we turn on the mic, Sebastian's yes. like, I'm going to quote Ecclesiastes and say, like, stop <laughs> reading empty words. The end of this, everything is just fear God and obey. And we can still finish that with that. We could. <laughs> that would be a typical way to do it. Okay. Because that's how we have found our cause in serving, or that's at the end. That, that is at the <laughs> end. I'm getting yeah. This is why the co-chair comes with a lot of responsibility. Are you ready? Yeah. We're going to start. With number one, Ed Fazer's point number one, and that is, again, this is a crash course in some philosophical arguments for God. One of the ones you're going to hear is called the Aristotelian proof. Ar- Aristotelian proof? Aristotelian proof. Yeah. From Aristotle, the Greek, the Greek philosopher. Aristotle, of course, pagan. Um, so he had a philosophy, but you can use that philosophy to push towards there being a God. And Theodore, you have like a whole treatise in this. Why don't I pass it to you? Right. So I'm, I'm just going to read through, uh, basically read through this, and then we're going to quickly just mention the others huh? or oh, okay all right one of my favorites the, how would you say the Arist- aristotelian aristotelian yeah thank you not reptilian <laughs> um <laughs> this is the argument from motion or from change one might say the unmoved mover unchanged changer uncaused cause or unactualized actualizer and so ed phaser in his book goes through four types of change um qualitative change which is like change in temperature such as coffee cooling as it sits and ed phaser in his book uses like one example of coffee so i just made that for all these examples then a quantitative uh, is the second type of change which is a cup of coffee fills up as it is poured into uh locative or location uh, coffee descending from the machine into the mug substantive a living organism becomes inanimate matter um, and maybe eventually becomes fertile soil for a coffee tree. <laughs> or its moisture <laughs> evaporates into the atmosphere, becoming rain to help the coffee tree grow, perhaps. Um, and then he goes through, uh, mentions two series of contingents. Uh, one is chronological, um, something that's contingent upon something prior or changes with the change of time, like hot coffee, after sitting for a time, becomes room temperature. And then hierarchical, um, something contingent upon that which allows a thing to exist here and now, not necessarily with any relation to time. So like hot coffee is only hot because it's able to sit and exist in a hot pot. And it, <laughs> this is going to be a Dr. Seuss rhyme, just kidding. And it is only coffee because of the compounds of which it's composed, having been co- combined in the way they're combined, of course, having been sourced from a coffee tree. 
which is a coffee tree because it uh, uh, was a be coffee bean or seed in fertile soil with adequate water and adequate sunlight and adequate climate. And it grew above ground because that's what's programmed into its DNA. And because it was planted at the right depth below the soil, because the soil was deep enough to accommodate the right depth, because the Earth's depth and properties are such that they are, uh, because the solar system and physics are ideal for its, its existence. Let me pause and you and summarize that. then. Okay. <laughs> so he's got, he's got all these different things, ways you categorize change. And the, the general concept of Aristotle is that everything is always changing. In fact, there's this materialist view of the world that many atheists have, and Aristotle also had it, and that is that every action of somebody is always caused, is always a reaction to something else. So you might think that you decided suddenly to go get you know, cheese from the fridge, but really it was a series of events that led up to you being hungry enough to go and get the cheese in the fridge and the fact that you bought the cheese in the first place. So there's all these cascading effects. So there's a bunch of different kinds of change like you just uh, laid out, and then there's different contingencies and why those changes take place. But ultimately, the theory is that everything that exists is affected by everything else or th other things that exist and that everything is um, affected by something. And they call that being actualized. When you are moved to do something as a reaction to something, you are being actualized. So that's, that's the basis theory of what you're laying out here. Mm -hmm. Is it a chain reaction then? Yeah. In fact, I had a guy in high school um, who we'd sit in physics class. Shout out to Tony. Um, Tony... Mm -hmm. Except for some reason he knew he was Christian and he was like, he, he gave out this logic puzzle or proposition. He said, if you knew the state of everything in the universe, so you knew every molecule, you knew every atom, you knew every quark and the direction it was leading right now all over the universe, could you predict the future? And he said, yes. The underlying assumption there is that all that there is, is matter. And therefore, physical things are the only thing that matters in the universe. And so if you knew where they were all going right now, you would know exactly where they would go into the future because they're at some certain trajectory. They'll hit other things. So you know like neurons and, and everything that might affect the universe, the physical matter. And so therefore you'd know the, the future. Um, I disagreed, of course, because I believe there's things that are not physical. So even if you knew every physical state of everything in the universe, you wouldn't know where it was going um, because there's actors that act on matter that are outside of physical reality. And also God intervenes in physical reality. So even if those actors are subject to all the physical world, God is not. In any case, there you go. Pass them back to you, Theodore. Yeah. Um, a little interlude here, Chain, uh, kind of mentioning what you just said. Change is possible if something has put a potential to be actualized, and it can uh, be actualized by something else that is already actualized. Like the coffee has the potential to become room temperature, and the, uh, and the room around it because the room around it is already actually room temperature. Um, yeah. And so that's about that. Four times, uh, kinds of change, qualitative, quantitative, locative, substantive, and then the two series of contingents, chronological and hierarchical. And yeah, now I'll go into a little discussion. So I, Honestly and earnestly, I'm calling on anyone with opposition to this argument um, because from what I've currently had time to read and watch, I am not aware of any substantial objection to this argument. Um, and and, then, the, and the, what is the argument exactly? So we established the groundwork that, that everything is changed that, right. by other things. <clears throat> that anything... Right. So, so that... Ergo what? 
maybe there, I'll, I'll do a little there caveat. Is a, there must be a changer. Yeah, there, and you said it at the very beginning. I just okay. wanted to, to summarize it again. Okay. Right? There must be the domino that started the whole domino chain of effect. So, um, <clears throat> i.e. God, there had to be some unchanged change or some unmoved mover that, that started everything at least. Um, so there you go. Because everything has a change agent of some sort, everything's acting on other things, there must have been something that started off. Uh, I'll personally say... I don't know how well this fares in like your friendly neighborhood debate or schoolyard or wherever else you're talking to your local neighborhood mom because um, I don't know that the premise is very convincing. The thing with logical arguments is you're supposed to lay out all these little building blocks that everybody agrees on. You know, Everybody agrees that the sky is blue. Do you agree? Yes, yes. Both parties say yes. And then you say, um, does everybody agree that the ocean is blue? Yes, yes. Does everybody agree that light reflects off of surfaces? Yes, yes. And then eventually you say, because the sky is blue, the ocean is blue. And you've got all these arguments, or these pieces of facts that everybody agrees on. They're simple enough. Everybody agrees on them. And then you chain them together to come up with some conclusion that everybody should agree with logically. Um, so people try to use that all the time. Often it gets misused. We just did a response video, me and Sebastian, to a guy who created a logical argument that was built on two facts. That God can condemn babies and that it's wrong to condemn babies and therefore God is wrong. Um, but of course, the two facts that he presents are disputed because we would say, yes, we were the first that God can condemn babies, but we would say that it's not wrong to condemn babies. And that's a pretty advanced thought. So you fail, you fail the logical test because we disagree with the second premise. That second premise needs its own logical argument. Um, in this case, and just because God can condemn babies does not does. necessarily yeah. mean he does. It's true. Right? Yes. And then we uh, presented the case in how, what the only workaround is. And it's ironically the position that he is that attacking. Is. Yeah. In any case, separate video. Um, <laughs> in this case, I would say your regular neighborhood mom, Spider-Man, person you're arguing against, doesn't agree that ever, like everything is being changed by everything else. I think that's kind of a, a weird concept for people to agree with as a base. And therefore, even if they like nod their head and say, okay, okay, when you present, well, then there must be an unmoved mover, they'll be like, nah, because they actually didn't agree with the fact in the first place. But... Just if let they, me have my fun. If they truly <laughs> believe in that premise that everything is being affected by other things and therefore you need a, a primary mover, then continue with the <laughs> Aristotelian oh. proof. Aristotelian? Dang. Yes. Aristotelian proof. So from medium.com, we get articles like, did the universe have a, be a beginning? Which thoroughly concludes... The Big Bang wasn't the uh, beginning of time and space. A cosmic inflation, which uh, preceded it, cannot be the beginning either, unless it went on for an eternity. After a century of cosmic revolutions, we're back. Uh, we're right back where we started, unable to answer the most fundamental question we can ask. Um, how did it all begin? And from space.com, we get articles like, The Big Bang didn't need God to start the universe, which the most intelligent of researchers researchers say quote our universe could have popped into existence 13.7 billion years ago without any divine help whatsoever and they go on to continue or they continue the big bang could have occurred as a result of just the laws of physics being there a silly astrophysicist said he continues the question then is why are there laws of physics and you could say, well, that required a divine creator who created these laws of physics and the spark that led from the laws of physics to these uh, universes, maybe more than one. But that answer just uh, continues to kick the can down the road because you still need to explain where the divine creator came from. 
The, pro the process leads to a never-ending chain that always leaves you short of the ultimate answer. The origin of the laws of physics remains a mystery for now, one that we may never be able to solve. And again, that's what uh, the space.com article said. And you probably, honestly, so of all the like pop arguments out there, you've probably heard that one before. And that is that we say, well, if if things exist, there must be a creator for them. And so there must be God because things exist. You might say, as, as a Christian, I've argued that in the past when I was a little kid, and you might have done that before, or I've been tempted to before. So that's kind of the, the Aristotelian argument in a nutshell. Um, and then the atheist typical response is, is just that. Well, then who created God? If everything needs a creator, what, what needs God? You're stealing my you, thunder. Yeah, go for it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So who created God? The hierarchical portion of this argument renders the somewhat common objection that the universe never had a beginning irrelevant, for even the existence of it at all depends on an actualizer who actualized it. Atheists cannot get past their presupposition that God needs a God. If God needed a God, then we would say God's God is ultimately the God we speak of. Our very definition of God is uh, a being who has no author and who has no authority. And scripture is in agreement. And I can stop after stop after this. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2, uh, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Isaiah 40, verse 28, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Malachi 3, verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And a quote from uh, one of the songs that I like, Rest in You by All Sons and Daughters, I think. Um, the bridge of that song says, You cannot change, yet you change everything. And therefore we know that God is not an effect of anything, but rather has affected everything that exists into existence. One of my favorites from Micah, I would add that in there, that I've been trying to memorize in Greek because the Septuagint lays it out clearly about the Messiah that's going to be born in Bethlehem at, at the end, in chapter 5, it concludes, whose origins are from old, from days of eternity, mm -hmm. meaning he is eternal, mm -hmm. and yet is going to be born into creation, thus the Messiah that we worship. Right. And so, uh, like in, in plain terms, then, the fundamental flaw with the atheist saying, well, who made God is, it, and this, you've probably retorted this too if you've ever gotten to this argument, is nobody made God, God always was. And that's when the atheist goes, uh, However, I've never had kids, I remember like being in third grade and getting into this very argument, and the third grader res respond back to me when I say that, um, well, why can't the universe just have always been there? Like, if you're assuming that God is always there, why can't I assume that the universe is always there? And I think that's part of the flaw of the Aristotelian argument, is that who are you really slapping in the face here? Because people will say that. In fact, ancient Greeks said that the universe just always was. That was Aristotle's conclusion, that the unmoved mover was um, the original gods, and that they always were there, and then they, they actualized the universe. I suppose um, you could potentially go to the <laughs> argument of information or DNA or something like that, that information has to come from somewhere, a, uh, like a mind or something like that. But once again, I mean, you get you get down to other presuppositions. So people might say, well, the original like pantheon of gods was the original gods or the universe was always this way. And so we should really worship the universe because it has this inherent information in it. It's no God. It's just just creation, which is what the Hindus say. Yeah. Or so, Buddhists. And, and in that case, you've you've like you've done a lot of arguing for nothing because now they've decided to have some weird faith presupposition just like you. And so you do equalize each other when they make fun of you for like believing in something just because. 
then you've equalized them because they also believe in something just because. Um, of course, yours is based in history and, and tradition and truth, and they're spaced out of their butt, but you've at least equalized them on your playing field. But it's a lot of work to try to equalize them. So I think you only use this if you um, if, if somebody's being very prideful against you for being like a foolish one who has faith to prove to them they also have faith. It's just in a different system, a less attested to system. So if you pay attention, that was the Aristotelian proof of the existence of God, and that is that the, the theory that everything is being affected by other things and that God was the ultimate beginner of all that. There, there needs to be God. We all in agreement? Yep. Any other comments? Okay, we're going to work our way down the list. That was number one, and it's a good one to know. Again, you probably heard it, not called the Aristotelian proof. You probably just heard it in general, like every, everything has a creator and God is the first creator. And he always was. Here's the second proof. This one's going to get even more heady, so hold on to your pants. Um, this one is called the Neoplatonic proof. Plato was uh, another ancient Greek um, around Aristotle's time, a predecessor of Aristotle, and his philosophy, along with the Aristotelian philosophy, were popular in the early church just because it was in the Roman world and they were affected by Greek philosophy. So these have been floated around the Christian world for a very long time. So the Neoplatonic proof, the new Plato proof, is not quite Plato's position because Plato was a philosopher that had particular positions on how life worked. This is the new take on Plato's position. So there's a Neoplatonic, that's your background. It posits this, that the whole universe, everything that exists is made up of parts. So we know this um, kind of the origin of the theory of the atom. Or classically, Isaac Newton had the same thought. Like if you, cho if you chopped an apple in half, and then you chopped the half of that apple in half, and you chopped the half of that half of the apple in half, and you kept going, eventually you're gonna get down to something you can't chop. And whatever that tiny, tiny, tiny piece is, um, it's the ultimate fabric of that apple or the universe or it's it's some infinitesimally too undivisible thing and we know today that you can divide atoms so atoms are not the ultimate um, and even today we know that atoms are made up of things we call quarks and we assume that quarks are made up of other things so what's the fundamental part of the universe what's the fundamental thing that makes up the universe and then the neoplatonist proof of god says that there must be a simple an absolutely simple non-composite thing in the universe um and we call that thing God, the thing that keeps everything in order. Um, so like if you've ever gone to like History Channel or Science Channel and they're talking on Nova or one of these other insane programs, we talk about <laughs> string theory or other theories of, of universal constants of how the laws of physics work and why they work all the time. Um, the simple answer for the Christian is God holds all things together in his good order. And so the Neoplatonic proof would say that God is the holder together of all things. He's what causes quarks to fly. He's what causes atoms to hold together. He's what causes uh, people to do what they do. You know, he's sovereign over everything, and he is the fundamental unit of the universe. And he himself is not divisible. A couple weird philosophical things to talk about, and maybe, Sebastian, you want to talk about this. We agree that God is not made up of other parts. You can't take a part of God out of him because he is God. You can't take a part of him without taking all of him. However, the weird philosophy heads out there will we'll take that agreed upon Christian truth and recently like like true believing people but they take this weird philosophy about it they'll say that because we all agree that God is simple meaning he's not made up of different parts he's, he's just God um, that nothing about him is distinguishable so they'll say because God is simple when he is wrathful and we experience his wrath because it's coming from a simple God a unified God his wrath is the same as his grace they're both the same thing. They're both just 
God's energy coming out. Um, we would disagree. We agree that God is simply can't divide God. However, he does differentiate portions of him. So he sh- shows a portion of himself, and that is his wrath, and that's his just reaction to certain situations, and his grace, and his mercy, and his creativity, and whatever else. So we would say you can't divide God, but you can discern different elements of God. That's all. Yes, and this is, I can't believe I'm saying this, one of the few things that actually I'm holding hands on with the Eastern Orthodox. That oh my gosh. Clearly, clearly this. Uh, defined the difference between the essence of God and the energies of God. And the essence would be things, yeah, I should start with essence, things that are intrinsic to God, meaning omnipresence, omniscience would be. And something like his energy would be his grace, his love. Things that come out of him. His, mm-hmm. Yes, his wrath. Exactly. The best way to put it is things that come out of him. For example, as I, as I always say, when God, when they says God is love, you're not going to fly into heaven and see a giant heart floating in heaven because he isn't literally love, but he invented love. Love comes from him. That would be an energy of God that is very distinct and clear than his wrath. Otherwise, why are people going to heaven or right. hell if they're if they if it would be just be one place altogether? So mm-hmm. clearly, they're distinct. God distinguishes between them all throughout the bible when you get his love trust me it's not the same as getting his his anger or his justice on you trust me you don't want that so it is very well-defined distinct and i just think it's silly that you want to say they're all the The same same. that caveat out of the way again the neoplatonic proof says that god is simple in a way that we can agree that he's not divisible and that he's the the holder the orderer of all things Uh, because we we Ultimately, the cause of all things is something universal to everything, right? Like you get past the atom, past the quirk, there's something holding everything together. The Christian would argue that that thing, keeping everything in order, is God. And so you use this to like define, you trust in laws of physics, atheists, you should believe in God because God's the one that holds them together. What were you going to say? This might be a good verse to end on, but it also kind of goes with this. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 mentioning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hold together, I like that. I used to have that one memorized. Yeah, great verse. And and there you go. That's very point. Memorizing sign language. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very official sign language. Uh, I was being your signer there. Uh, that, interpretive dance. Interpretive dance. <laughs> That's a great one. If you, if any Christian is ever questioning, like, does God really hold all physics in his hands? Maybe physics are like something that was intrinsic to the universe. Again, a great great way to go for the Bible. And plus the fact, even the atheist, we we say it all the time on this podcast. You should quote scripture to an atheist too, even though they deny the Bible is proof. The Bible is a sword. The word of God is a sword and it cuts regardless if somebody believes it or not. So I say you quote it regardless. That's the Neoplatonic proof. I think it suffers from some of the same issues the Aristotelian proof suffers with. And that is that people don't have to conclude that God of the Bible is the, is the ultimate. They could decide, and, and they do, and God-hating atheists do, decide that something else is the fundamental thing of the universe. And it just is, just like God is. And so string theory from um, Stephen Hawkins and others... Um, they posited that the ultimate of the universe, the ultimate thing of the universe, is these tiny little circular strings. Uh, don't ask me. They make some math argument for it. I'm not the one to ask, and Nova and Science Channel did not explain it enough for me to be able to explain it to you. Um, but they say that 
ultimately, like if you get past atoms, you get past quarks, there's these tiny little vibrating strings and they're all vibrating at different frequencies. And that's, that's like the fundamental building block in the universe. And they always have been, and they always were that way. Um, okay. <laughs> like, uh, I would think that, that it's equally like faithy presupposition, just like presupposing that God is the holder of all things together is, is presuppositional. So you do the same thing as the Aristotelian argument. And that is you get the, the atheist on your same playing field of just assuming some presupposition. However, it doesn't really get you any closer to being, to them being Christian. It just gets you able to argue, I guess, from, from a better spot. So is it the best? No, but something to use uh, once again, to answer the fool according to his folly and say, if you believe in the laws of physics, you should believe in an order of things. And, that's God. Just something fun to do at your local playground. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Talk to your local third grader about. All right. So that was number two. So we've gone through the Aristotelian proof, and that was that there everything has a reaction, and so there must be an initial pusher of all the reactions. We've got the Neoplatonic proof, which says that uh, everything is fundamentally made up of parts. So there must be an original source part, and that's, that's partless. It's absolutely simple. And here's the third one. This one he calls the Augustinian proof. You could also call it the regular Platonic pl proof, but to not confuse things, another proponent of this proof was Augustine, uh, a church father. And so he uses the Platonic proof. Again, for lack of, for sake of not confusing Neoplatonic and Platonic, we're going to go with Augustine. But he used Plato's actual reasoning, not the Neoplatonic reasoning, that everything that exists in the universe has some abstract version of itself. For example, a chair. Somebody makes a chair. All chairs relatively look the same. Some of them are different. Some of them are in different forms, but they're all trying to get you to sit in it properly and make it comfortable. Ergo, everybody's trying to do the same thing. They have this idea of a chair in their head. And therefore, there must be this ideal chair that exists in mm -hmm. theory somewhere out there. And the fact that we can even think about something that doesn't physically exist um, is proof that these abstract things exist. They really do. Just like the number one, the number one is an idea. It doesn't physically exist anywhere, but we all can understand the concept of one. So this concept is abstract, but nevertheless, it's real. Um, that's, that's Plato's philosophy. Augustine uses that to say that because abstract things exist, spiritual things exist. There's more than just the material world. There's also all these these spiritual things these these truths that are real they're just not physical so just like the number one is real but it's not physical so too are spirits real even if they're not physical and there are there are true things and false things in the abstract so just because it's not physical doesn't mean that everything that could possibly exist is true it just means that certain true things are true like the number one being one or particular angels existing but not other fake angels or god being real and once again Augustine twists, he takes the Plato's argument and pushes it into the Christian lens and says that because abstract things exist and there's these divine ideals of things, all of this information, all these ideas, just like physical things exist in a physical world, these, these thoughts must exist in another world, a spiritual world. And the head, the order of that spiritual world is God. And so he says, the way he says it is that these things must exist as ideas in a divine intellect, that there must be some divine intellect that holds all of these abstract things together. That's the jar in which all these ideas exist. Um, 
thoughts on awesome. the Augustinian proof? Yeah, you like it? What do you think? <laughs> okay, okay, well, so we're going to be able to build anything. I mean, like, that's that's one that to, to an extent makes sense because didn't he make the heavens first, God? Mm-hmm. And then the ideal chair would be his throne because it's probably the first chair that was ever made in the universe. That's, that's similar to what I was uh, mentioning to Michael when we were talking, like, five minutes before you Shema Israel. Yes, yes. He also imagined the concept of armies as we have angelic armies i mean you, mm-hmm. you can't you can't take it too far because probably there's probably no food you know that clearly was created after created heavens because i don't, I don't think heaven, angels eat or consume anything i mean he had the idea for food to eventually exist yes yes and i'm thinking of ephesians one in love he predestined us to adoption before the foundation of the world mm-hmm. so i guess he had the idea of humans and yeah. redemption and christ you know his atonement okay okay this one I, I I can appreciate. I'll leave it at that. I think the usefulness of this argument isn't the whole like, and therefore all these things must exist in some divine intellect. Like I, I don't think you need to push it all oh, the way yes, to yes. proving God. I think he only used the portion of it that matters, and that to me, and that is that the materialist who believes there's only the physical things. I think you you say, does the number one exist? And then I'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you say, well, thank you for agreeing with me that the world is not just made up of physical things. And so I think it's a good way of um, pushing past materialism when you're confronted with with an atheist or whoever's materialist by saying that there are truly, we all agree uh, that these things exist. Some people say love and emotions or whatever else that aren't physical things. But if you don't want to get too sappy, just go with the numbers or go with ideas of things like the, the ideal of a chair is going to be really special. Um, but these, these abstract thoughts exist and therefore the world is not just made up of physical things, but spiritual things as well. Another point that I think could be useful from this argument is that um, there are standards. Mm-hmm. Um, like there are identified, designated things, and then there is better and there is worse of whatever it is. It's it, another good way around ob- uh, subjectivity. There's these uh, the modern schools of thought where they say that there is no truth, it's just opinions about things. And so the majority opinion wins, and that's why they're all about power because they want to be the majority mm-hmm. so that they can define truth. And if they are the majority, they can make men into women because they just say so or or whatever else. Um, but, but there truly is an objective reality. Men cannot become a woman um, by their own wishes. And equally, you know, chair won't transform into an airplane by its own wants or our own designs it needs to be made and it needs to be physically moved um and the same way these abstract thoughts don't change they're just true one will always equal one there's no way to change it truthfully you can lie about it but it will always be one regardless um again we're getting headier and headier as we get down here (laughs) but you can see the portions of these that i would take um are really just portions of it uh to, to deflect an atheist's objections and again you always deflect and then you push into the gospel you don't just focus on the deflection or the objection that they have push it away quickly because they are all push away a bull when they object with materialism against God because they're saying the only, all there is is the physical universe object with the Augustinian proof and if they say that uh, that that uh, the universe always was talk about the Aristotelian proof that everything needs a, a mover an actualizer and if they talk about um, if the string theory being the theory of the universe, retort that god is the existence of the the order of the universe and therefore we're both on equal faith playing fields indeed i have one for from isaiah it's like wow it's like the trial of false gods he says thus is the lord your redeemer who formed you isaiah 44 by the way who formed you from the womb 
I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth myself, by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Again, going back to God being the one behind all these things, not any human concepts, string, like the string theory of how the universe holds together and whatnot. It says, I'm like, yo, I, I did all of this, meaning Yahweh, meaning Yahweh did that. String cheese theory. <laughs> oh, ho, got him. String cheese theory. <laughs> cool. I'm glad we're bringing scripture into this. Uh, and then for the August, and then for the Augustinian one, mm-hmm. I accidentally, pun intended, substance and accidents. Uh-huh. Ah, accident. Oh, there it is. Okay. Yeah, there Philosophy it is. Philosophy joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never do that again. <laughs> for, for Ephesians, remember the idea, ideas existing outside of the physical realm. Ephesians talks about that God before making anything he already had in his mind the plan for Christ to redeem the human race the human race so to me that's when I would say and this is why you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that's how you immediately turn it to the good news yeah that will be that will be my recommendation you can try it mm-hmm. I will try it myself you start talking about these things about the abs- the abstract world and then I would say Ephesians would be definitely a tool to switch to a more theological conversation. Yeah. And the problem, I think, as we talked about in the beginning, and I'll just reiterate it, is that these proofs don't really prove the biblical God. So if you don't quote the Bible, you won't get anywhere on the whole trying to convert your friend mission. You have to root it back into what the, uh, Theodore and Sebastian both said, and that is actual scripture that you can talk about the thing in abstract, the Aristotelian proof, the Neoplatonic proof, the Augustinian proof, but you have to tie it back into scripture if you hope to get anywhere with your friends. So again, use the Augustinian proof with Ephesians 2, or with Ephesians 1, sorry, and that will get you into the gospel. Great. All right. Getting into number four here, so we've done Aristotelian, Neoplatonic, Augustinian. That's one, two, three. Fourth one from Ed Fazer's list is something called the Thomistic proof. That is from St. Thomas Aquinas. My not my least favorite theologian in the abstract, speaking of abstract, but he's so popular that I now hate him. So it's kind of like, you know, like am I that annoyed annoyed by the Minions movies? No, they're like harmless fun. And if my like, you know, grandson made that, I'd be like, oh, wow, great work, grandson. But the fact that they're so popular makes me hate them. Uh, that's a side <laughs> note. Uh, so the Thomistic proof. Um, I don't like this not only because it's from Thomas Aquinas, so I think it's way overblown, but also because it's stupid. But we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Maybe we should just skip over it. No way, point. no way, no way. I'm probably stupid for thinking it's stupid, according to the wise. But uh, the Thomistic proof is that it, kind of like the Augustinian proof, kind of like Plato's philosophy, he says that everything has a, two two fundamental proofs about it. It has both its physical reality, its existence. So like we are physically here, we're, we call ourselves existing, but then also its essence, essentially its soul, like what drives it, what's its character. And so we, as humans, we would say are bifurcated into two parts. It depends on how you divide yourself, but we have our physical existence, our body, the flesh as scripture would call it, and then the spirit, your essence, your, your thing that runs your body. Um, and therefore, Thomas argues, that there must be at least one thing in the universe that created everything that isn't isn't split that he just always was and he was able to to create everything else and so we are bifurcated into two things that that the spirit can't create the body and the body can't create the spirit they're they're linked together 
from other causes, again, kind of linking maybe some of these other philosophies like Aristotelian philosophy that, that everything has a cause. Thomas says that there must be one thing that's just one thing. It's just spirit um, that was able to create everything else. It's just essence that exists by itself and was able to create everything else. And so he, of course, argues that as scripture says, God is spirit. He was the original thing that was subsistent in and of itself and that it created everything else in existence. Um, does that convince a single soul? I would argue probably not. I, I don't think you can explain that to your grandma. I don't think you can explain that to a seven-year-old. I don't think you can explain it to to scholars. And when you do, I mean, you can explain it to scholars. And when they understand it, they'll be like, okay. Like, I don't think it, I don't think it convinces anybody because they don't agree with the underlying principle. They don't believe that you're bifurcated into your essence and your existence. Like, you know, take a long walk off a short pier is what they're going to tell you. They, don't, they hate God. So they're not going to agree with you just because. And two, it's not even like a, a stunning rebuttal they just disagree with your fundamental principle and that is everything is divided between your essence and existence nobody agrees with that except for christians so and i don't even even sure i agree with it as a christian i'm like i guess it could that could be true but i certainly wouldn't be staking my claims about the proof of god on something that i would like i'm like indifferent to do you have any counterattacks no no (laughs) i completely agree this is not something you should bring with you uh to recess in third grade when it's dodgeball um, day I would say even scripture, I think, is is kind of differenty on this point because the only way, and we've talked about this in this podcast before, some obscure episode from long ago, um, where the first commandment is love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so we were talking about how, how do you divide yourself? Are you divided into three parts then, your heart, soul, and strength? Um, I would make the argument that that's the case. However, Jesus um, a, a wise scholar from the Gospels reiterates the law, that law, and he changes it slightly. He says, mind, soul, and heart, I think. So he leaves out the strength and adds mind in there. And Jesus is like, you have spoken truly. So truly, I, I don't think that there's like a hard and fast principle from Scripture on how you can divide yourself. And therefore, when Thomas says that there's a hard and fast principle of essence and existence, I, I don't know that we have any authority to say that. I would disagree. Any objections? I'm thinking of creation when God formed Adam and then he breathed the breath of life into him. I don't know if that tells you anything. Yeah, there you go. So he had the, the physical form, he had yeah. the existence, and then God gave the essence. So there's a two, yeah. a bifurcation there. Yeah. I suppose. That's the only thing I can think of. Okay. Think of anything else? Can let me know. That's oh, a pretty good one. I mean, there's a two thing, but I just stood counter with all the other random things of three part or four part or whatever else. Um, so the Thomistic proof is there. I don't think it's very proofy. I don't think it really does anything for anybody. But it was St. Thomas Aquinas, and the man is just the wisest studier of scripture there ever was. So take that for what you will. So we've gone through the Aristotelian, the Neoplatonic, the Augustinian, aka the Platonic, and then the Thomistic. Wow, don't you feel smarter already for knowing all these words? Uh, those are all the proofs. There's one last proof. This one does not have a super fancy name. Ed Fazer just calls it the rationalist proof. And this one is... I'll read the summary and then explain it. The rationalist proof begins with the principle of sufficient reason and argues that the ultimate explanation of things can only lie in an absolutely necessary being. And that is that you can't have logic. You can't have reason itself without a creator of reason. And so when atheists use reason to argue with you, you can counter them by saying, why do you think logic is true? Or maybe a more concrete example, why do you think that today will be like tomorrow and that yesterday will be like tomorrow? I.e., you get out of bed, 
assuming that gravity is still going to work. I, I don't think anybody except for maybe ex-astronauts have any, <laughs> any time of thinking that gravity is not going to be there in the morning. However, if you're a materialist, if you're an atheist, if you're somebody who doesn't believe that God orders everything, you are making a fundamental assumption that God exists in the morning because you agree that gravity is going to be there in the morning. You don't give it a second thought. But you have no reason to believe that just because it happened yesterday, it will happen today. Christians do. We believe that God is holding everything together by his consistent order, and so he will hold gravity today and yesterday, and he always has been um, since creation. But the atheist truly has no basis for believing that yesterday will be like today. And so they they spout all this stuff about scientific reasoning and how you can prove things, and they're looking for physical proof and replicability, and, and that's the scientific method. But the scientific method is actually based on there being a constant order to the universe that's that you can trust and so we trust in god therefore the only there, there has to be everybody has to have an absolutely necessary being that holds the universe together and that's the argument there is that you can't be logical you can't argue with reason you can't really do anything in life without an absolutely necessary being holding everything together holding logic together is consistent holding physics there as a consistent um, and so it's foolishness to argue against God because you're using God's existence to argue against God. If that makes any sense. I've heard Jeff Durbin, I've heard street evangelists use this one. I don't, I, every time I've ever used it, I even used it in some some comments um, on our website the other day on, on YouTube, um, our website, YouTube. They, and, and nobody ever, they're like, you know, the God hater is never going to be convinced by that right? Because they always use reason and logic. So when you say like, if, if every idea is a ship and the Christian ship is this huge, beautiful galleon built on all of God's truth and the atheist is on his like sinking little puddly thing that's only alive until he dies, um, sinking rapidly into the ocean, he jumps on your ship and is like, your ship sucks. You should get on my ship. This ship's a piece of crap and starts kicking it all around. And then you can be like, get off of my ship then you know if you think it's such a piece of crap go back on your little piece of cardboard that's sinking into the ocean um that's like you know stop arguing with logic and reason because those are christian principles you know you should get back on your meaningless life of of existence over on the, the sinking piece of cardboard i suppose you can do that but usually the the invader on your ship is going to be like um no your ship sucks and then like they're just going to ignore you because so. mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not rational fundamentally that is this is one that i can i can I, again i can appreciate this one like the Augustinian one, because if you throw a grenade out there and when it explodes, it doesn't lead to a flower being created. Normally, it's just a big mess. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look outside the universe, there's all this tension with, with matter. And what you actually see is things are constantly being held together. Like the tree outside this window doesn't just explode on a random. It's held together, I would say, by a lot of tension, but it's the, the, the matter holds together. There's logic, there's gravity in the universe, and the Big Bang, again, like a grenade, doesn't really explain how can there be so much order in the universe. So, you know, I, I can appreciate the idea that there's someone holding it all together, as we were from Scripture. Someone literally is holding it all together. Mm-hmm. But again, you have to tie it back to the Word of God. Otherwise, they're just going to be heaping insults at you and saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Any thoughts, Theodore? Nope. Probably shouldn't bring that one even to a sep- uh, second grade recess. 
I mean, again, you. I think you can use little bits and pieces of all these, except for Thomas. Why would you ever do that? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the other four, uh, I think you can bring uh, bits and pieces of them if you find them useful. So that's why I'd say, like, of the two things we'd want you to get with from this podcast in particular today, one of them is some of the pieces of these arguments could be useful to deflect a certain um, attitude your aggressor is having at you, particularly atheists. I think these are almost always an atheistic attack on christianity and that's why they're proofs of god so they're just rejections of the atheist atheism if they ever argue with you but they in of themselves i would not say are really sufficient proof they're just a just an argument and so you need to to couple that deflection of the atheist attack with one of these things with the gospel immediately because otherwise you have defended against the atheist attack but you haven't actually struck them back you need to answer with the word otherwise you're not fighting to also give one a note of encouragement, you might think the Bible is so boring. It's only about being nice, loving your neighbor. Okay. You'd be very surprised in the Old Testament. Okay, besides all the wrath and destruction too, and love and mercy, the trial of the false gods, I just did a quick reread of it. A lot of these bits and pieces, these principles are found there. Mm -hmm. For example, one of, one, of, one of my favorites from the Isaiah 41, again, God being the source of all things, and he's the one who instigates causes change he says to as a sarcastically he says to all the pantheon of gods that are out there he says set forth your case says Yahweh bring your proofs says the king of Jacob let them bring them and tell us what is to happen in the future tell us the former things what they are that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you're nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. There's so much in here. Again, God being the source of all things, he is the one who, yes, he creates change. He causes things to happen. Not only that, I wish, as an amateur historian, I could tell you why people in the past did some things. God just said, yeah, I can tell you why everything that has happened, why it happened. Mm -hmm. Because... I caused it all to happen. I instigated it all to happen. And I can also tell what's going to happen in the future. He doesn't need to know the position of every atom in the universe, but because he is God, he created, he invented time. And he also, in Isaiah, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Again, all over scripture, you'll find many of these principles mm -hmm. in there. So it's not, now if you like philosophy, strongly encourage you, trial of false gods, starting in Isaiah 41, going all the way up to just read it until I say 53 <laughs> just read the whole thing just read the whole thing but it's quite a big chunk from Isaiah that's dedicated to ex God explaining how he made the universe how it actually holds together we just read before and then he can tell you why everything happens yeah and I, I think keyly maybe philosophically here is that if we agree that some of these with the exception of the Thomistic proof who cares about that <laughs> um, the rest of them if we agree that they're useful profitable arguments <laughs> for God uh, we know that scripture from scripture, so it says, has everything that's profitable to a Christian in it. And so these principles, while they might have been originated truly from Aristotle or from Plato or whatever else, they actually, from a Christian's perspective, come from scripture somewhere. And so if if I could design this better, instead of eight phasers uh, categories, these, I would actually call them totally different things, the same, same arguments, but tie them directly to scripture. So instead of calling it the Aristotelian proof, 
Aristotle might have been getting at a scriptural truth, but use the scripture to define what that proof is, not Aristotle himself. So call it the Isaiah proof to show that God was the origin of all things, and then you can point right to Isaiah, and that would make it an easier use case for Christians who go to use it because they can directly mm -hmm. push into the scripture and then pivot into the gospel. Um, instead of calling it the Aristotelian proof, like, would, do people need to know it comes from Aristotle? Probably not, and that doesn't give you any scripture in and of itself to point to. You have to, to know where to go. That is a big danger that I've seen many philosophers who are Christian that lean towards emphasizing philosophy a lot, that you rely on these ideas, which as we have seen, they're not all that bad. I mean, some are like, get them out of here. <laughs> Specifically one that we're looking at. It's okay. It's okay. And he doesn't like Thomas. You're not a Tom fan, are you? A Tommy boy? No, not terribly. Okay. <laughs> but it's relying on these ide on so much ideas outside of the Bible. What we what we have pointed out, all of these things, all of these five points, they get you to believe in a God or gods. It doesn't tell you in the slightest that he is tripersonal, Holy Spirit, Son, and Father, mm -hmm. much less that it's one God. I mean, it, you, you might as well believe in the pantheon of Greek gods right. that all of them got together and collectively, who are very powerful, mm -hmm. created the universe. Or you might believe that the universe has all these... Um, Intrinsic is, properties, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, like in like in Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, it is a better, it's a step above atheism for sure, but you might as well become a Hindu or a Buddhist or Muslim. Mm -hmm. you, I mean, this very well supports the, the case for Islam, in which it's a monad. We have done this on Islam too. A one singular God doesn't really suggest for anything for the tri-personhood of God. Right, and that's why you have to pair it with Scripture, as we'd always say. Yes. The only way, again, as I've said many times, the only way we know anything about God is because he has told us himself. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you can really know him. Now, we have also done episodes on the reliability of scripture, but the only way to know God intimately is what he has told us with his own mouth through the, or through the prophets. Yep. All right, gentlemen, any other last thoughts on these, either these five proofs or just philosophy and proofs for God in general? I'm happy. <laughs> All right. Well, that is why we have found our cause in serving that same Lord Jesus Christ we were just talking about. I've been Michael. To my left has been Sebastian. And to his left, Theodore, under the PC, the oh, person of Christ. Gave himself an that. Look at that. So humble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbead.com and download them all for listening pleasure. That's audio only, though. If you want to see our lovely faces, you have to go to YouTube and search us up there or go to facebook.com forward slash foundcause. We're also on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever else you might find your podcast. Until next time, we do another response video. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.